think that that is how people come to the university as, as whole people, uh, people with varying identities and backgrounds and experiences that impact their uh, success, their access to college in general. Hello all, my name is Sammy Hamp. I'm the news editor at the Appalachian and thanks for tuning in to our first official podcast episode. On this show, we're gonna be talking about issues big and small and how they affect the Appalachian community. Now, we're looking for this show to be about a bi-monthly thing, so I would be checking our social media, our website, and our SoundCloud every other Thursday if you want to hear more great interviews like this. And today we are joined by Jordine Blaze, Associate Vice Chancellor for Equity, Diversity, and Compliance here at Appalachian State University, and we're going to be talking about affirmative action under the Trump administration. On August 1st, the New York Times reported on a document circulated in the Trump Department of Justice seeking current lawyers interested in working on investigations and possible litigation related to intentional race-based discrimination in college and university admissions. Now, can you talk about how that was interpreted by college administrators here at Appalachian State and elsewhere? I think that administratively, we don't have anything that is set in policy. So I wouldn't say that there's anything that has been changed in terms of our current approaches to recruitment or admissions. I think that we would have taken a report like this just as any average reader would. It's just informational purposes that there could that could indicate a change in the future um, or it could not. We just really don't know this early. And based on the document or what was circulated as an internal document, we don't have anything to support um, the fact that there will be any comprehensive policy changes either through an executive order or through other formal means. And then I just want to also talk very briefly about what kind of power the Trump administration should it decide to it would have to affect affirmative action policy. I think that remains to be seen. I think that certainly depends on how the approach is taken. Um, I believe that based on the report from the New York Times that it would not go through the what was what had been proposed internally at the very least would not go through the traditional uh, educational opportunity section of the Justice Department. Um, what was proposed would go through a um, sort of front office task force that he the president could potentially put together. Um, and so the impact that it may have or has the potential to have uh, really does it really remains to be seen. I will say that historically, in terms of civil rights laws, um, our guidance is typically federal law. And so what has remained constant has been um, our following guidance that has been uh, disseminated through federal law with interpretation that has gone through executive agencies. And so it's it's possible that what we could be looking at is an interpretation of what is written in law um, doled out through federal agencies. It could be that it is given out through executive orders. So um, the Obama administration uh, gave executive orders for government contractors related to LGBT protections, uh, protections for LGBT identified individuals. So historically, it's not unusual for civil rights policies to come through the executive branch. Um, They have come before. It really would just be up to whether or not um, that comes as guidance, whether it comes as formal executive orders, um, or perhaps as uh, proposed changes to federal law. What we do know is, uh, however it comes out, ultimately, um, there is potential there for uh, what our guidance, our final guidance to be coming from the Supreme Court in their decision making around affirmative action policies. Okay, great. And yeah, I definitely want to dip into that a little bit because just last year we had a decision, Fisher v. University of Texas. Can we talk about like the effect that that has had on affirmative action policy and what that kind of set as a benchmark going forward for that? 
So I think that the general takeaway from Fisher is that uh, it was upheld. The University of Texas policy was upheld. And so there really weren't any changes to any affirmative action policies that would be expected out of that decision, um, more so affirming the very uh, the very consistent standard that has been set and the guidance that has been set by the Supreme Court that essentially tells us, you know, we must apply strict scrutiny when we consider race in uh, admissions. Uh, What I will say is, in addition to kind of what has been upheld, one thing that has come out of that and has been consistent in any rulings related to affirmative action is that these decisions and these policies, whether it be App State specifically or universities more broadly, um, are intended to be consistently reevaluated. And so that certainly depends on the national status, the cultural status that really helps guide us in terms of whether or not these policies are still necessary. I think what came out of that decision and what um, several Supreme Court justices hinted at was the way that we look at affirmative action policies, the way that the court is looking at affirmative action policies really considers cultural context. Um, It's been that way for many years now. And so when affirmative action policies were uh, enforced, we were um, on the heels of desegregation policies. And so uh, as culture evolves, we may see different approaches to affirmative action happen. But as far as whether anything changed, I would say things wholly remain the same with the caveat that colleges, all colleges should be consistently watching and reevaluating any policies they have uh, related to admissions and affirmative action. Yeah, and I guess with that, do you see there being a potential for in the future if things change or if there is the perception that things change, that there will be an actual rollback on these policies or that there will be a drastic change in the way that they're uh, allowed to be carried out? From the university or? It's from more from the courts. I don't know. I mean, I really think that depends on a number of factors. I mean, uh, there are a lot of justices nearing retirement, and so the court could look very different in four years or eight years than it does right now. Um, I think that a number of people were surprised even by the Fisher decision um, as it came out four to three and upholding Texas. And so I think that that is a constantly moving target and it would be really impossible to predict. Um, I think that how we view affirmative action is consistently evolving. I would say, aside from admissions on the employment side, so while admissions has its own affirmative action um, policies, the employment side has affirmative action policies as well. Um, They operate a little differently, but for example, affirmative action policies exist in employment for veterans um, and persons with disabilities. And so how we view affirmative action in a sort of racialized context or related strictly to race may even evolve in terms of what categories um, do we apply affirmative action to that may evolve um, a number of, uh, there are a number of misconceptions about affirmative action generally that it is race, it's, it's exclusive to race, um, but we have seen affirmative action operate in particular as it relates to sex as well. Um, and so uh, to, to go kind of circle back to your original question, I think that those things can change and evolve at any time. And I think that is part and parcel why we've been tasked as institutions to consistently evaluate policies is, does this serve uh, our larger purpose is essentially the question I think that we have to continue to ask ourselves. And the other kind of key takeaway from that is every institution uh, has really different approaches to admissions as it relates to affirmative action. Um, When I think of the the Fisher, Texas case in particular, uh, the 
Texas Affirmative Action Policy, while it considered race-based um, admissions as part of their sort of holistic review, also had a specific policy around admitting the top 10% um, of students from Texas high schools who had a certain GPA, I believe. And so some of these issues are a little more complicated than just a question of whether or not race is one of the factors of many considered in admissions policies um, or in admissions practices, rather. And so some of that will really depend on the individual school um, and what their uh, policies are and whether or not that will spell any guidance for us, either from a system level um, or from a national level really remains to be seen. Okay, great. Yeah, if we could just talk very briefly about like what kind of standards there are for Appalachian State and then what standards are generally accepted for uh, an affirmative action program or a program that takes race as, in some way into admissions. I will say that um, the university takes a holistic view at an applicant and that looks at the entirety of their background and their experiences. That may include race and it may include a number of other factors. Um, it could be related to identity. It could be related to socioeconomic status. Um, and, and in addition to the standard uh, indicators, GPA, uh, extracurricular extracurricular involvement, et cetera. And so I think the question uh, really is uh, what is our approach to looking at who a person is, who a candidate is holistically, and whether or not they would add to the, the, the larger fabric of the institution. Um, I think that that is in line with best practices related to affirmative action. And I think a number of institutions uh, take that approach in terms of looking at the holistic person. And I think that that is how people come to the university as, as whole people, uh, people with varying identities and backgrounds and experiences that impact their uh, success, their access to college in general. And so I, I would say that that is in line with standard and best practices. And I think that um, that App State will continue to do so. Great. And then also, could you just talk like a little bit about some of the biggest misconceptions that you see about affirmative action or programs that take race or other factors into consideration for admissions just besides your strict uh, academic performance? Sure. Um, I mean, I think that the general uh, miscon general misconceptions related to affirmative action are that decisions are, ma are made wholly based on race. And I think that that is very in plainly <laughs> um, not in line with our policies against discrimination and different treatment based on protected group membership. And so I think that it's really clear that there shouldn't be any decisions based solely on race. And I don't think that benefits anyone involved. Um, so I think that's a, a pretty common misconception about affirmative action. I think there's an assumption that individuals who are beneficiaries of affirmative action um, are somehow not as qualified as individuals um, who are not beneficiaries of affirmative action. And I think that that can be a common uh, misnomer about the ways in which affirmative action uh, is it takes place. Um, I think that the beneficiaries of an affirmative action historically have largely been women who identify as white. And so I think that Initially, as affirmative action policies took place, um, I think that the largest beneficiaries was making sure that there were uh, sex and gender balances in um, higher education in general. We had a number of universities that were exclusively accessible to uh, men. And so that gender diversity that we're seeing is absolutely a reflection of affirmative action policies taking hold. Um, and again, what I spoke to earlier, which is affirmative action policies are not solely based on race. They also include gender. They also include uh, veterans and they also include um, they also include individuals with disabilities. And so not only is it uh, solely a, a 
portion of this admissions piece. So how do people get into college? But there there are questions um, related to affirmative action based on retention and recruitment. And so how are we recruiting not only students as um, or candidates as potential students, but potential employees. There are a number of things and reports that we are required to keep and records we're tr- required to cre- keep to show that not only are we making attempts to recruit a diverse workforce, for example, um, but that we are retaining that workforce. Um, and, and I think a common misconception is that that doesn't include some of these other categories. How would you say these programs advance the educational mission of the university? And why do you think it's important that we have these kinds of programs? I think it's clear that uh, diversity and inclusion, um, both in this realm of recruitment and admissions, but also um, in programming and activities, is an institutional priority. Um, And I think that that extends, you know, while the scope of my work is very narrowly tailored to protected group membership. So looking at things like veteran status, disability status, race, age, gender or gender identity or sex, et cetera. um, I I think the approach more broadly is that we learn better when we are surrounded by people who have a diverse intersection of ideas. Um, I think that people come to university as whole beings. Right. And so we're really thinking about this question of are we made better by interacting with people who are different than us, who think uh, of things different than us, who find solutions differently than we do. And I think uh, sort of from a broad scale, big picture uh, question of whether or not this is these policies are good. Um, I think that there are policies in place that are absolutely good. I think that practices matter more. Um, and so as someone who does compliance work, I think a, a fair amount of my work relies on policies and Um, It's sort of the bread and butter of my operation. Um, But I think that practice and culture are far more meaningful. Um, And so when I come in with a policy, that may mean one thing, but someone's experience at App State means a whole nother. And I think that's something that we can't kind of gloss over or miss in that um, we really want to prepare all students to be successful, all students to be global citizens, all students to think critically about uh, facing challenges and solving really intricate problems in the world. And the best uh, chance they have at doing that is meeting people from all walks, all walks of life. What can we do to make that experience better for people or make it so there's, it's a more rounded experience for everyone and it's more a welcoming environment? I will say, um, you know, some of my comments are just going to be based on you know, certainly not my professional expertise, but just my personal experience and perspective. Um, I'm a new member of the App State community. I, I joined the staff here um, on July 1 of this year. And so I would say that there, I would say that the one of the biggest challenges is that there are a lot of assumptions about the identity or the spirit of App State students or the App State experience that um, people may interpret or believe based on their ideas about what a rural western North Carolina town or school might be like. Um, And I think that that is, uh, I think that's a a misidentification of, of the true experience of App State. And I think that if students from a variety of underrepresented backgrounds or students from, um, other walks of life, and it doesn't necessarily rely on that question of whether they're racially diverse or whether their diversity uh, lies in their sexual orientation or their gender identity um, or some other identifying factor, age, et cetera. Um, But I do think that sometimes it's really hard to communicate the spirit or the identity of 
the the student body here at App State, the experience here at App State, um, based on what people may presume about what the culture is um, based on its location, if that makes sense. Yeah, so just kind of like the way that the school might get represented to people as as a place that is a little bit more, I'll just go ahead and say back, backward about certain things like that? I would say, yeah. I mean, I, I think that people would just have assumptions that this would be a place where they c- couldn't, you know, freely be themselves or there wouldn't be as many uh, like-minded students um, as them or even the challenge from a more practical perspective of people coming from metropolitan areas, um, really experiencing a more rural place. And I think even for me coming in, you know, when I hear rural, you know, I'm like, oh, I don't know, will they have this store or that store? And I think, you know, once you actually come into town, you're like, oh, well, there are just grocery stores and there's a Walmart and, you know, kind of your standard neighborhood staples. And I think that um, for someone who hasn't experienced Boone or hasn't been to Boone, they might have some preconceived notions about what they're walking into that aren't the most accurate. And I can say that from my own personal experience that it wasn't until I kind of drove into town that I was like, oh, like there are streetlights. I mean, I don't know what I expected, but I probably was wrong about um, what I assumed uh, to be. And so I think some of it is really just people getting a chance to experience. Um, I certainly think that in terms of attracting uh, diverse people um, or anyone really is access to scholarships and financial aid. And so the the more people can have assistance and support in paying for school, the more people would be interested in coming, I think. The more diverse the faculty and staff become, I think that's a natural progression um, to attract more diverse students as well. So I think that those are some general ideas. Um, but I will say, you know, these are struggles at every, pretty much every higher education institution. Um, how do we recruit and retain more diverse faculty? How do we recruit and retain more diverse uh, staff, particularly at the professional levels? And of course, how do we recruit and retain more diverse students? Um, the other piece is students have more options than ever before. And I think the advent of the internet makes it possible for students to become familiar with institutions that they never would have been familiar with otherwise. Um, back in the olden days when I was applying to college, um, I was relying on word of mouth and kind of sending out letters and those sorts of things. And I may not have had access to as much information as other students may have now. And so I think the landscape is is far broader than it may have historically been for a number of students as well. So I think any number of those factors might impact the way that students uh, approach or think about attending. Great. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. That was our show. This episode was produced by me, Sammy Hamp, news editor at the Appalachian. And if you liked what you heard today, be sure to go ahead and follow us on SoundCloud and check www.theappalachianonline.com for more news updates. As I said, this show will be airing every other Thursday, so keep your eyes and ears peeled for future conversations like this one about issues big and small and how they affect the Appalachian community. Until then, goodbye, y'all.